I think the, like the pinnacle of of real dynamic movements is two hops forward, one hop back, or two hops forward, one hop upwards. So mm. like a fast yeah. into a high hop. The speed of that, learning how to control your your center of mass when you're doing those sort of movements, putting your I mean, putting the brakes on, redirecting force, um, and really just being able to change your momentum effectively and not getting stuck in the bottom of movements. That was Matt McInnes Watson, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Great to have you here. Matt McInnes Watson is the owner of Plus Plyos. He has coaching experience in track and field as a coach for jumpers and multi-eventers. He's been a strength and conditioning coach for college basketball in the UK. And currently through Plus Plyos, Matt works with athletes of many backgrounds from football to Olympic weightlifting to figure skating, using his expertise in jumping and plyometric training. Matt also teaches and delivers seminars around Europe and the U.S. For the podcast today, Matt will be covering his background as a soccer player as well as a track hurdler and how one fateful dunk in basketball, the first time someone asked him to do that, led him into high jumping in the world of plyometrics and track and field. And he'll be covering his plyometric integration and combinations from the perspective of uh, combining directions, combining direction with height, and how he sequences the rhythm and patterning of plyometrics to gain a powerful training effect for not only track and field, but also team sport athletes. We'll also be covering topics of extensive plyometrics and team sport training. I'll be talking about the deep tier or the full range plyometric exercise adaptations and much more. Uh, Matt is a really creative mind in the world of jump training, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Before we get started with the podcast today, I wanted to remind you that this podcast is sponsored by one of my favorite companies, Lost Empire Herbs. If you want to dip your toe in the herbal performance training waters, you can get one of their flagship products, a superfood and energy and hormonal booster pine pollen for free with only the modest typical cost of shipping. And to do that, you can head to justflypinepollen.com. Lost Empire Herbs, of course, has other awesome and very staple, you could say, products in strength and performance as it pertains to herbalism, such as shiliagit powder and resin, the Phoenix formula, which is one of my favorites, and much more. For those, you can grab 15% off by using the code JUSTFLY at checkout, and I hope you get a chance to check them out. That being said, let's get to episode 365 here with Coach Matt McKinnis-Watson. Matt, welcome to the show, man. It's great to have you here. Thank you ever so much for having me on. It's, uh, yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, so I know we have the, we have the commonality of the track high jump background. I, I'm sure you probably did some other events that I did as well. Uh, but yeah, tell me a little bit about your track background uh, and obviously how that sets you up for everything you do now with plyometrics and a little bit about how that created the lens that you see athletic development now. Yeah, so my, my entrance into track was, was strange in that I, I did a little bit of hurdling whilst I was in, in kind of the British form of high school. But other than that, soccer, football was my life. Like I, I wouldn't even watch anything other than, than football, soccer. So it was uh, very much that way until I was 17, got into basketball. One of my friends said, can you dunk a basketball? I said, I have no idea. Gave me a basketball, said, just flush it through the hoop. And I dunked a basketball in my first attempt to do wow. that. And, I, and <laughs> I laugh as well because the first three-pointer I ever scored was with the inside of my foot. We were just stood there and I was trying to kick the ball into the hoop. And that was the first three I scored. So like, that's, my, that's how football-driven I was as a, as, a, as a young British lad. But basketball made me realize that I'm not a basketball player. I was far more an athlete than I was a player, I think. And yeah, got into high jumping through 
through my college uh, when I was 18 and started to high jump a little bit. And I didn't high jump when I was maybe in high school or in the earlier ages of high school when I was doing a bit of hurdling because my best friend was, you know, he'd go to the national champs and I was like, well, you're a high jumper and I'm not. So <laughs> that's, that's how it went. I never, never experienced it, but yeah, I got into high jump and the, the first person that I met happens to be my mentor to this day. And I've known him for around 15 years now. And he was, he was my high jump coach and yeah. And, and my mentor in really all things speed and power and sports science. Did a little bit of triple jumping. I think I would have been an okay triple jumper, but speed would have been my limiting factor if I wanted to have done anything truly impressive. And high jump, I, it's one of those, it's, it's a tough one to put my finger on as to why I feel like I didn't jump what I should have jumped in my mm -hmm. eyes. But it, yeah, a big, big thing that changed for me was the speed on the ground for my takeoff. It went from 0.22 when I first started off to 1.7 when I jumped my personal best and that, that I think was significant. And I think having to learn that and get that into my body through the plyometrics that I was introduced to from my coach and mentor, Eric, that was an, an integral part of all of that. Just becoming a lot more elastic because I was just so low and slow. Mm -hmm. I remember the, one of the first national champs I went to big guy bailed out with a no height and I'd snuck in and won a bronze and one of the national coaches come over and was like, you high jump terribly. You look like you're trying to straddle, but you're also doing a flop. You're so long on the floor or whatever. But yeah, that was maybe my speed off the ground was the limiting factor to jump serious heights. But yeah, that really just organically grew into me wanting to learn more about how I can develop myself elastically and soon became a passion to see that in others. And we, we had a fantastic group of jumpers that, you know, there was no like, it was just group of local people that came together that were kind of 12, 13 up into senior athletes. And at one stage, I think we had four national high jump champions at age group levels. So it showed in the, the training that we were doing as a group. I was not one of the national champions, <laughs> but, but the younger, the, the younger kids were just, they just stood out in the way that they moved. And that, I think that drove a lot of passion to me and in, in looking at how I see movement and how I see it developing and where I'd like to see movement training going or plyometrics going in the future. And that really to me is locomotive plyometrics is, is seems to become more and more the body of my work. It's kind of stepping away from maybe the idea of always having to use implements or hurdles or boxes and just, can you move effectively over ground? Can you do that with hundreds of different variations? which I think is becoming more and more apparent to helping within team sport as well. So, you know, I've had, I had a good team sport background, but learned a lot through track and field. So I think that that has definitely helped me because I find some other track coaches that are great with biometric work, maybe don't have the background in track uh, in, in team sports and can't maybe, yeah, just can't transfer that over and find ways in which, you know, we can't all have every soccer player depth jumping. Maybe it's just not realistic, but you could be doing all these rudimentary forms of movement. They could be doing more locomotive forms of players. So that's the, that's kind of how it's bled into me kind of leaving, being a jumper, going into coaching. Um, and I was coaching that same track group because my mentor had to step back and yeah, moved on to me kind of developing my model off of the back of Eric's system.
I like how Matt, you mentioned uh, you said soccer slash football. You know, just for <laughs> us here <laughs> in the kind. United States, just <laughs> yeah. be kind for us in the United States. Yes, I, I think that's really cool. How you hadn't played basketball and then how old were you when you did that when you dunked that like 17 did you say 17 18 yeah in around that sort of age group yeah i genuinely probably you know we might have done it in in physical education at school but we're talking like it's if you don't know basketball and you've got like 15 year olds running up and down a court it's the worst sport the worst sport to watch when people have no idea (laughs) so that was the kind of that's the level of stuff that I, you know, I would have touched the ball maybe twice in like 15 minutes of play. So yeah, the development of that was almost zero. So yeah, it was around 17, 18. It's, yeah, it's interesting just for me to think about. I always like looking into the developmental aspects, like what sports did you play or even just like even within track, like people who were a decathlete, then maybe they specialize in sprints or high jump or something like that at some point later. And I think it's really cool that you were able to dunk and you hadn't yeah, I mean, with soccer, you have headers and stuff, you know, but yeah. it didn't sound like you had a really big jumping background before that and you were still able to do it. So yeah. I've, I've been having conversations with people as well. And my kids are, I knew you, I knew you have a little one and my kids are five and six and you know, they, they just do soccer. And I shouldn't say just do soccer. They've done some other like basketball camps and things like that. And I'm looking to get them in some other things here soon, but mostly what they've done is just soccer. And I just think, well, that's a, you know, in terms of something that can be a base that can go out to all these other sports later. I think it, even if it's not like jumping all the time, you know, and like you said, your ground contact got better, but I do think it offers an awful lot. And it's, it's just interesting to hear how you're able to dunk and you had, yeah. had that basketball background growing up. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think if maybe if I was to, to go back and, and tweak my past of what I was playing, it would have just maybe have been a little less soccer, but I would have definitely would have kept that in as the, in terms of, my ability to pick up skills with my feet, it really trumped people that maybe hadn't done that or had come from basketball, direct just basketball, and gone to track and field. Because I there was a, a a player that came along with me to the track at exactly the same time. He went into sprinting and I went into high jumping. And he could not pick up how to just develop skills with his feet in terms of drills, patterns. And straight away, I was able to, to pick those patterns up really quickly. And ultimately, unless you're a thrower, track and field in, in the jumps and sprints, your arms are it's pretty easy to learn what, what goes on with your hands. So that had a great crossover. But I think I would have I would have maybe maybe have introduced a bit more basketball at like the age of 14 or something like that. And I think that would have given me a bit more of a broader spectrum of skills from a harder court to a softer pitch and and all those different parameters in terms of speed, acceleration, deceleration skills and stuff like that. So but I yeah, it's a, it's a strange one to think about because honestly, my vertical jumping would have been, it would have been headers and that would have been it. And I don't know how much off of one leg that would have been either. So again, yeah, it's uh, interesting to, to to think back in that sense. Yeah. And some kids, like my kids, I, <laughs> this is where I'm like, oh, crazy dad, like they'll jump if they're like, you know, playing obstacle course or something where they're jumping from cushion to cushion or Sometimes if there's like a pool noodle, I'll, I'll ask them if they want to jump over it. Of course they do, you know, but like, I'm, I'm really surprised. And I've even saw this with uh, like my brother's kids when they were my kid's age, about five or six. So I would just say, hey, let's have a jump over the cushions contest. And, you know, of course they love it. And I would watch how they jump off one leg at least. And, you know, I'm like, you know, this isn't actually that bad. Like they're actually doing pretty good. And I imagine you've probably seen the same thing as I noticed that 
athletes who just the basic act of jumping off of one leg it is just an extension of the gait cycle it's like it's it's yeah. closer to walking and running and sprinting than a running two leg jump is because <laughs> once yeah. you get a running two leg jump that's more tied into like a swing or a deceleration or change of direction even there's a lot more rotation uh, rotational components that happen in that and so i do think you know if you have the structure at least for it too you know, even if you haven't practiced a lot it it's i think it's a little bit more innate than yeah. some other you know than like a volleyball jump i guess you could say or doing yeah. obviously doing a 360 dunk in basketball <laughs> it, you know what it's slightly a small note on that it saddens me when you get a basketball player that literally can't jump off of one leg <laughs> they are so ingrained to jumping off of two. They're like, I can't jump off one leg. I'm like, you do layups. It's yeah. it's part of movement. I don't understand how that now becomes difficult. How much have you learned? Have you like, I don't know. You've almost unlearned that. Yeah, it's so built into us. But yeah, it's just a strange, strange little side it, note. It, there. it is. Yeah. No, I, I'm glad you said that because I'm sure that basketball player who says, "Oh, I can't jump off one." I'm sure when they were five, they probably, that was probably their best jump. And then they just got, yeah, like it's, they just kind of took down into that movement well of planting off two. And even for me in my, the last um, meet I did high jump in, I was 29. And ever since then, I, I just started jumping off of two feet a lot more. And you know, I think a lot of that went with spending more time in the weight room and stuff like that. And eventually I got to doing so much of it that when I would try to jump off one, like the rhythm that was always inherently there was just gone. <laughs> and it was interesting because I, I found uh, just practicing it, I could get it back. But even just doing stuff like throw some bounds and then do a few steps and do a jump like you see in a high jump takeoff or even just different long sprint iterations like low knee sprinting and then jump it like, ah, this is what it felt like to do that again. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's yeah. interesting. It is interesting how you do lose something that that is is there but there's also like just the rhythm component as well and like yeah it's uh it's kind of like you have it you just forgot because you just love jumping off two feet so much which there's yeah. a lot of really good two foot jumpers too in basketball but I, I hear you on that one for sure yeah 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 it's uh i think it inherently goes back to the use of the arms and how that synchronizes rhythm especially with the ball two yeah. foot guys cannot figure out what to do with the ball off of one leg i, I find that's so such a big part of it so yeah, it's probably the big transfer. If it's just a case of you know jumping over a over a pool noodle or just jump for height, I'm sure they get on a ride with it. Yeah, yeah, I could see that too. Yeah, because you have that like you have that lateral transfer of the ball to whatever the plant leg is. You have to kind of put that ball on that side of the plant leg. So it's like it's a more a more confounding portion of the rhythm as well on top of everything else. Exactly. So I was going to ask you as well with the contact times, and you know, I don't want to stay on basketball and soccer too long. I, I know we have a lot of plyo stuff to get into, but I think about it a lot in level of, on the level of skills. And I think about you. You had mentioned I think something about how you went over the bar and you had a longer contact time initially. And I know for me, like soccer was my big sport until I was about twelve, and then I started playing basketball. And when I started playing basketball, I got completely obsessed with jumping. You know, trying to like every month trying to touch the rim a little higher or, or whatever. And my jump was like i used the swing leg in like i was kicking a soccer ball like that's how those two skills connected and and so and, and people made fun of me i looked like I, if i wasn't jumping well <laughs> i looked like a big like thrashing worm over the bar it wasn't until i got really dialed in in college that everything got a little tighter and i i wish i would have had someone measuring my ground contact times or at least giving me the data later <laughs> i don't know if in the moment maybe that would have been um it probably would have been a good thing for me but 
it wasn't till later on that everything got a little tighter in, in the takeoff and then I jumped my highest. So yeah, I'm curious what if you did any like of the, the kicking a soccer ball type motion bleed in to your initial jumping early on, do you feel like? Massively. Massively. It was a yeah, big swing of my free leg and that that kind of scissoring action, that back leg coming through to almost to block at contact and then the the takeoff leg kind of pulling back, which I almost had to change the idea of that so I could pivot over the top of that takeoff leg faster. And it wasn't some such a reliance on what my free leg was doing in terms of then like lifting my center of mass off of the takeoff. Because I think that's where I felt really good because that's where I ultimately got a lot of vertical velocity from this feeling that real punch of my knee then as it as it kind of it would swing almost straight and then i'd feel that kind of lift off of the takeoff with that synchronization of the free leg so yeah i'm a right foot footballer and i'm a left foot takeoff so it goes perfectly in hand big block leg of that left side and and you know my my coach and mentor eric would always humor me and say you know, if you were to look at those balances from left to right, your right leg is definitely inherently your speed leg and your left leg is, you know, more of a, more of a slower strength or power leg. What would it be like for us to jump off of your right leg? And of course, because I'm right-handed, I laid up off of my left leg. So there were so many skills built into me doing that, but I could jump a little bit off my right leg. I think I'd have had to have done that from the get-go but I think it would have been a lot faster off of my off of my right leg if I was to plant on that side. But once you've ingrained running around a, a curve on the left-hand side, going going the other way is it's far different from changing your legs in the long jump, put it that way. It's just so different. It would be, yeah, it's almost like changing hands when you're playing basketball and just shooting primarily with the other hand. It's just, yeah, really foreign in that sense. So big transfer from from soccer and how I'd strike a ball. And And funnily enough, when I was younger, I was always the guy that would take the goal kicks because our goalkeeper could never take goal kicks. I was a big free kick taker and I just, yeah, I had a pretty powerful shot in terms of how I could strike a ball. And I think that transferred over quite, quite well. So yeah, interesting to see how a strike could also transfer over to a takeoff as well. Yeah, that was one of the first, my first year I was uh, learning from Adarian Barr. That was one of the very first lessons was teaching. I think it was teaching triple jump on the basis of actually like a swing leg action, like a kick, essentially. I think that might have been in the terminology he was using. And it's like, because I had never, I had never thought about like that, it never connected in my brain. And, and the more I think about it, and, and I, actually, my goal is not to make this a purely track and field conversation. Actually, the next <laughs> question I was going to ask you was about team sports and, and versus track and play. So, I'll, I'll get there real quick here. But I just, I guess I got to value a lot more that role of the swinging leg in in a takeoff, especially the triple jump, like the second phase and, and having a balanced second phase where it's like equal front side and backside and that backside leg kicking through. But I was, th- was going to say, it, just from a global perspective, you know, kids in sport, you know, I think soccer, football, <laughs> you know, equal terminology here, uh, basketball, those are, I think, two massively important sports and what they offer. But I was thinking about, okay, well, if you wanted to take end up in the track route, if you weren't going to end up in the track route, it probably doesn't matter a whole heck of a lot. But like I watch how like some different athletes do take off for like the NBA type thing. And, and there's a lot of times there's a little bit more ground contact time or whatnot versus a high jump. But the like I saw, you know, Stefan Holm, you know, the, the famous high jumper, you know, 5'10 or 5'11, you know, jump in 7'10. 
there's a picture of him jumping over like a hurdle, like a single like jump over a hurdle when he's a little kid. And I kind of feel like if you had, and I mean, this is all physical education though, but I feel like if you're playing soccer, you get the swing leg element of the takeoff, but that's slow on its own. <laughs> you got basketball, yep. which is good for just jumping, but it's like, well, if you want to also just learn to make things a little faster, just doing stuff like having kids just jump over hurdles and having fun, or I guess just having kids doing track and like long jump too is great too. I wish I would have yeah. done that when I was a kid, you know? And so I think there's, there's, it's just cool to look at like some of the pieces that come from each sport that can ultimately go into building an athlete who has a lot of options later on. Yeah. And I, I think the, there's always the people get scared of that individualization of sport saying, oh, you wouldn't want to step, like, no, your primary sport wouldn't be track and field. But it could be, like you say, it could be clearing barriers. It could be jumping as far as you can. It doesn't have to be the event. You don't have to go and learn all the intricate skills, but just exposing your body to needing to get off the ground faster and being that dynamic and, and reactive in a sense has a huge value. So if you're sprinting, you're throwing implements and you're jumping over things or jumping as far as you can, I think, mm. I think that matched with, like you say, soccer and basketball, you're going to have someone that's going to get some success in either one of those directions, I think. So yeah, it's a... Uh, there's a lot of value, especially if you want to learn to jump high in having to get over something. The the need and you know that to traject your body more with a longer parabola as well, as opposed to kind of stopping on a dime and going straight up mm -hmm. with a dunk. I think that's that's the inherent difference with the the ground contact times in in dunking a basketball is that you really have to just stop and go straight upwards. So you're going to get a longer ground contact time for doing that. That might not transfer over well for trying to get the whole of your body over something. So that's why. Doing a little bit of that as well, I think marrying those two up has great merit. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good segue into actually, so the, the official uh, kind of integrating question <laughs> of track and non-track uh, athletes. So what are some things that you look at with uh, working or prescribing or looking at plyometrics in light of team sport athletes who maybe when they go like a basketball player, if they go to jump, maybe they spend a little longer time on the ground than a high jumper might or volleyball or any jumping sport. What are some nuances that you're looking at when you look at a team sport athlete compared to a track and field athlete? Well, I mean, the, the degree of multi-directional work, I think, really multiplies in a sense. And you could, you inherently can be spending a lot more time redirecting force, whether it's moving side to side, whether it's forwards into a backwards motion. It's learning to apply brakes and then accelerate back out of those movements. And I, I will include a lot of that. And I, one of my favorite combos is two forward and one back. And whether you're doing that bilaterally, whether you're doing that on one leg, I think the, like the pinnacle of, of real dynamic movements is two hops forward, one hop back, or two hops forward, one hop upwards. So mm, like a fast yeah. into a high hop. The speed of that, learning how to control your your center of mass when you're doing those sort of movements putting your and putting the brakes on redirecting force and really just being able to change your momentum effectively and not getting stuck in the bottom of movements because i think that really is where you make your money in team sports when you're when you're trying to cut the, those guys that sit at the bottom of that car and the, the defender's reading it really easily like okay i know i know exactly where you're going with this you're not selling it at all in comparison to the ones that just drop in and out of that movement really effectively. I think my a lot of my plyos and work for especially things like basketball, that's 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 where a lot of my work will go. So 
the multi-directional sense is, is massive there. If you're looking at more soccer players or guys in American football that are running longer routes and stuff, I like to just get a lot more unilateral work on the move with those guys. And people might say, oh, but they do a lot of that in sport. And I'm like, exactly. So I, I, I want them to continually, I want you to be able to bound on a curve without using your arms. Can you zigzag using a set of hops on one leg, taking away certain things, doing that with a med ball? Can you do this? Can you continually propel yourself effectively in a way that it's not massively stressful on your body so that when you, you know, when you get back to the pitch, this is just something that you can do easily. It's not really taxing on you. And, and I think having an array of skills in that sense for, for, you know, high speed games, like, like football, soccer, I think is, is really, really preferable. And I, I think people as well, they get very scared of, of implementing too much submaximal work for, for team sport athletes. And, and I argue all the time in saying to them, are you truly watching what's happening on the court? Because you watch a basketball player move on the court often a lot of the time, especially the, the, the bigger, the guy, they spend so much time on the ground, just plodding around. They are being as efficient as they possibly can because they might be playing for 40 minutes. So the quality of those, uh, say extensive or submaximal contacts can be pretty poor and they could all be pretty long on the ground. I, I would argue that they're probably, they probably sit more towards maybe 0.3 and 0.4 of a second in terms of just, it's not that quick. Maybe, maybe a little bit quicker, you could say, but I want to say, let's pull them into faster on the ground movements, but with maybe a little bit less displacement and working your ability to, to handle those movements at a bit more speed so that you can, you can call upon that. You can call upon that reactive sense. You can't just go, here's the game. You're getting exposed to a lot of these movements and it's going to make you better because obviously it's not. So, and you then essentially go straight to the intense work as well. And I'm like, well, you're not doing any of the extensive work, although you think you might be. So that's where, that's where I really attack, especially for, for basketball players. I think lighter extensive work is hugely important for players when it comes to ankle rolls. They have a history of, uh, of spraining ankles. I found that relearning how to land effectively has been a very, very important metric for me in terms of re-rolling the ankle. So yeah, that's a very broad answer that I've given you, but hopefully it gives you a bit of a gist as to you know where, where we can go with the conversation on that. Yeah. The next question I actually had, and you kind of covered it already, but your was your take on extensive playoffs for athletes who already are uh, doing all these ground contacts in team sport. So I, I do want to actually get more into that one. I did want to touch on, I like the like the two back, one forward, or the two forward, one up. Like One thing that Adarian Bard said, um, this was another thing he had mentioned earlier that I remember really well, is uh, movement comes in pairs. And I think a lot of times we don't really look at it that way. It's like, all right, we'll just go do your bounds. And they're all the same. You know, they're all the same. And that's not, that's not a bad thing. Like, that's not a, that's not a bad exercise. But I think that we are selling the training piece short if we never give athletes a chance to explore the rhythms that might actually be more applicable to what they might feel like in a jump takeoff. And I think, you know, a jump takeoff too, it, it, like a two foot, there's rotation in it. So it's obviously going to be different, but even just, can you do two, two forward, one up like that type of thing? Can you do that on a rhythm? How comfortable are you with it? And it is interesting because there's a lot more athletes who are not very good at that than 
you would think outright. <laughs> and oh, yeah. I think, um, and I do think there's even warming up like that or warming up like that and you know, having some music or some rhythm, like people feel really good after that stuff. And yeah, I think that we don't often, yeah, we just don't often look at it like that. I've, I haven't actually done too much of the, um, the two forward, one back type thing. I, I think that's interesting. It, it kind of makes me think too about, I guess like, like an Achilles tear mechanism is often in basketball when that foot goes back to plan and go forward and, you know, something happens with the timing of the calf or maybe there's some overuse or a combination of things and the Achilles goes, but it seems like that could be, I wonder if that would be a chance to observe trends, you know, in that backwards hop for good ankle mechanics or poor ankle mechanics as well as it pertains to being able to direct the foot back and then go forward as well. Because yeah, it's probably, I'm sure soccer, football as well, that happens a lot. So I'd be curious yeah. if you have any observations with that basic motion. Yeah, I mean the what I really love as well is the idea that there's inherently a lot of rhythm in the, in the way that we move, even when we're in the middle of a game. But that rhythm can also change in the blink of an eye because you you know there's a change in play. The balls move direction. It's tactical, whatever it might be. So being able to move in a sense and then go, oh, I've got to change direction now. Obviously, you know if you're going if you're going two forward, one back, you know the rhythm set there. That's not to say you as a coach can go. Forward, 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 back, forward, back, forward, 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 back, whatever that might be. And I, again, I play with those, those rhythms with team sport guys. I won't do it so much in, in track guys, but I like that, that idea in there that you can break rhythm with that as well. Now, looking at the, the Achilles stuff, the backwards to forwards mechanics of that and getting, getting into an accelerating stance out of that backwards movement tells me hundred things. It really does. Everything from Achilles stuff to how maybe there's going to be a potential for knee and hip issues as well. If someone's you know heavily externally rotating their foot, trying to do that because they just don't trust putting their foot back in that sense, or whether that foot just completely drops or the heel completely drops and they're not able to maintain a stiff foot. Whatever strategy com comes out of that tells me a hell of a lot. And it also tells me a lot asymmetrically. So if they, you know, if they've got a massive tendency to 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 like to move off of their left leg when they accelerate in, you know, if it's a basketball player and they want to go right and they're accelerating off their left leg, but you know that they're not great going the other way, it's because they can't and they don't want to accelerate off their right foot. Again, that helps out me me as the per se physical coach. If I can help things tactically and technically, then fantastic. Like I, I feel like I'm giving you something a bit more than just making you faster, stronger, and bigger or whatever. So that's one of the, for me, it's one of the biggest patterns that you can look at and observe a lot of deficiencies or, or even why someone might be effective at what they do. I hazard to say that not a lot of coaches do that. They don't use a movement to say, that's why you're good at that. They, you know, you don't, you, sometimes you don't question why someone's good at something. And I, I sometimes do that myself. I quite like to see why you're good at things. So I'll throw a load of mm -hmm. movements at you and be like, oh, this is why, because you can do this, you can solve these problems. So yeah, I really like that one. I even, I really, really tricked myself the other day by doing two hops forward, one bound back. And it messed with my mind completely because I had to change <laughs> legs as I went back. So if you want you want to mm -hmm. give yourself a real test of, of, uh, of movement pattern and literacy in that way, Two hops forward, one bound back. So you change legs when you move backwards, and then you have to hop again on that other leg. Yeah, it's a real test of your of your skill patterns. That's a that sounds pretty wild. <laughs> I, I, it does make me think a little bit about. I mean, you'd see these things show up 
sometimes that you know i almost take for granted and now not all players are like this or at this skill level and something like basketball but you'll see moves like a step back jumper you know what i'm saying like in basketball you'll see not a bound version but maybe a more something that happens more naturally in the flow of sport version of that happening and it always makes me that makes me always think like an athlete who already has these tools they go play and man they're getting so much out of that so then i think well how can i help other athletes to have some of these tools as well I was going to say too, what are your thoughts on or, or your usage or preference of something like, and it is interesting with like hurdle hops, right? And, and maybe we can talk about this briefly, is it, Randy Huntington had talked about this, Rolf Oman, like doing a lot of high, high hurdle hops with long, long ground contact times, not being, being a negative thing or potentially negative thing for an athlete who wants to be maximally springy. And I think that well, as someone who's internally rotated in my own legs and did a lot of really high hurdle hops and thought it was awesome. And I, I was getting up there. I mean, I was, it's actually really funny because like when I was the best at the double leg hurdle hops, like I was getting over um, four foot four in serial hurdle hops. But when I was doing that, my high jump was not better. I think it was actually worse <laughs> because I would, I would spiral down into the ground so much. Like I'm already internally rotated. So if you talk about a movement, well, the same thing that like, yeah. you know, if I kick a soccer ball all the time, my jumping might look like that. Like that, that got me. <laughs> um, and that really got me thinking about like, oh, what if you took a little bounce in between and the hurdles were lower, you know, stuff like that. So I, I am curious. I, I think that people who are more, there's a video, I forget the guy's name. He was like a, a short sprinter from Washington State. He was going over like like way higher than 4-4 on the hurdles. It was almost five, like serial jumping. That guy was way more externally rotated than me. And so, I wonder, I think he could keep his contacts down like a little bit more. And, you know, not that, I don't know. I mean, it is interesting. Sometimes I wonder how much, you know, hair splitting might happen on that. But what I want to ask you is more like your take on like the double bounce hurdle hops. Well, maybe hurdle height in general first, but then like stuff where there's like a, you hop and then do a little bounce or hop in a few bounces or just into level of movement patterning. Yeah. The, from a, from a movement pattern perspective, I think it, I think it's a great way to teach, teach people to deal with force effectively. And when you're coming off of something that has such extreme force, to be able to figure out that problem, kind of rekindle your positioning, figure out where you are in space, what am I going to do with this force? Can I get a little bit of a, a small impulse out of it and then go again? I like it in that sense. and I really like how you have to pair that extreme eccentric force to then go, now I've got to be reactive. I've got to do a small mm -hmm. one that's also going to initiate them for me to really propel myself up again. So you could almost say that that maybe you, it would have suited you to have done a bit of a bounce in between because it doesn't sound like you're too bad at dealing with eccentric force. It sounds like you probably need to get into mid-stance of the takeoff quicker mm -hmm. so you're stiffer and allow your elastic capability to kind of just reflexively pop you over it. So the double bounce might have been, might have been more preferable to you. I, I have my thoughts on that for single leg takeoffs and I think that However strange it seems, I almost think that striking a, a soccer ball is more inherently like a takeoff on the run than actually hopping over a hurdle on one leg. Because of the cyclical nature of mm -hmm. hopping on yeah. one leg, I think the, the way that we apply force is inherently very different. And then the way that we project our body into the air is also different. 
So when you hurdle hop, you're not going to lean back like you would in high jump. In high jump or one leg takeoffs for height, you're acting like a pole vault, aren't you? You're you're sliding in like a you've got the kind of shovel plant or whatever you want to call it, and you're uncoiling the leg. Whereas you're almost cycling it and whipping it down in a hop. So they're slightly different in that sense. So maybe the double bounce would have actually inherently given you that that kind of flip flick of your leg forward so that it propels you off the ground. And I, I, I do like the double bounce ones. I don't use a lot of them. I don't know why. You know, you just don't know. You're like, I don't know why I don't use them. But <laughs> I have used them in the past for sure. But I don't use a lot of them at the moment. Yeah, it was um, the Stefan Strand was a high jumper. I was like 20 years ago, I think, or uh, was it 20? I don't know. It was a long time ago. He was posting like all his training videos. He was you know, from Sweden. And I think it was about the time when Stefan Holm was jumping well or maybe a little bit before it. I'm not sure. I just saw some drill he did where he had two low hurdles, like by low, I mean like the the lowest uh, track setting, like 30 inches or whatever it is, 75 centimeters. And he would jump over the low ones and then he had the big high one. And I do remember the year I jumped my PR, I was really good at that one. Like, and Mm. and to me that makes sense, like because you're pairing like these, it's almost like you're priming the body with these really quick pops off the ground. And then you go into the big one and you're a little bit more in that mode and it, I love what you said with the cycling too, because it's the more, the more of a repetitive cycle it is that you feel. I think the the ben- more beneficial it is for either a single or a double leg jump. It's almost like there's the ground contact, but there's almost also the feeling if the hurdles were too high and you were doing double leg, you don't. It doesn't feel like a cycle anymore. It feels like a <laughs> like a like a kachunk, you know, like a more like yeah. a not a pogo stick. I, I, you're getting really far away from the gate cycle. I guess that's probably the only way. Yeah, and you have. It. You have those stalls in the air where the where the the cycle of the feet in in the pickup they stall and then they're like where what do I do now do I drop mm-hmm. now do I yeah. start to extend now and like you don't really want that do you that's inherently why a hop is it's quite effective when you're moving at a bit more speed because it's just yeah. that swing leg is just going it's it's whipping through nice and quickly whereas you know if the hurdles are just creeping and creeping up it makes it difficult in that sense. So I think that spatial awareness and sensations of what you do with that pickup and then that swing down. Yeah, there's there's something in that. And I'm not sure people can figure it out that well unless you've done a ton of them. But going back to the what you said about Stefan Strand, I think it's high jump. Mm-hmm. It is yeah. small, faster rhythms. And if you were to test the ground contact times from the first couple into the ones just before you're about to do the big one, I guarantee they got faster. Yeah. I guarantee that you geared it all up into a reflexive blah, 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 boom. And then that big pop off of the off of the high one. And you're probably speeding up that those ground contact time patterns to speed up the eccentric loading of that big takeoff. Um and it yeah, it those sort of those sort of sequences for me also also fit very, very well. Because I, I inherently wanted to go three, two, one and slow everything down so I could slow down the swing of the free leg. And it, yeah, I think it, it shows massively when it's more reflexive. It's also one of those things, I think, just in observing the rhythms of those different paces of the steps and, and the track jumps and like you, what you've done, how you've ported that into um, just a, a more uh, mainline plyometric execution where the same rhythms, maybe not exactly the same, but there's rhythms that are definitive that show up and test athletes and it's still all simple stuff it's still it's not like 
you know, you're not, it's not like, um, you know, obstacle course level or anything like that, but it's just no, simple no. cyclical movements that have a basic rhythm change. I just think that's really powerful. I, I like, um, there was a guy, uh, it's someone, a trainer who had very clearly spent a lot of time learning from the Marinovich system, which they did a lot of. If you see the videos, it's like the red, there's like the red and black pattern tile on the ground, I think. And then you have a lot of like stuff where the hurdles, but, and I'd never seen the Marinoviches do this, but it made sense to me as they were doing, these athletes were doing tail kick jumps, which is a common plyo, but they were doing it where they did like a double tail kick in the air. And it's kind of like what you said, you usually you do like the hurdle hop and your knees come up and there's that stall, there's that slight stall. Now, I mean, I guess if you do it fast, if you just did speed hurdle hops with like 12 inch hurdles, you could, you could keep it in a rhythm more like running. But I saw that and I was like, that's a really good exercise because it's, I mean, yes, it is working the hamstrings quickly. I think you work the hamstrings quickly too. and You just go sprint. But I was like, the rhythm of the hamstrings is really cool here because it's like it's keeping that cyclical feel and then that's going into the ground contact time. And I saw, I was like, I'm going to use that in my warmups. That's awesome. You know? And yeah, yeah, same thing you said. I don't think you could pull it off for, can you do a double knee, a double knee drive in a, a hurdle? <laughs> right, I'll go try it. Your right? center of mass would be good, like tilting <laughs> yeah. forward and backwards yeah. and you'd be like, yeah. I think the, the pattern or the rhythm or the, the cyclical nature of things is so inherent not just to how it feels for, you know, where our our limbs are in space, but also the actual sequence of the muscles and how they're activating, deactivating, loading, unloading, or whatever you want to call it, lengthening, shortening. And that those patterns are also inherently massively built into those feelings in the air. Where am I in the air? How do I feel when I'm coming into the, the ground contact? All those sort of things. And I think there's also a, a portion to it where if we continue that cyclical nature, you have no choice but to allow that to be fast. You, I, I use the phrase all the time, like you can't hide in these movements then because it's just so inherently reflexive. So sometimes using different modality, whether it is like a double, maybe not, maybe not a knee pickup, but even like the butt kick or whatever. Yeah, it gives you no chance to, to really decide what's going to go on. You, you can't hide. It's just going to slam your feet into the ground and it might spike how quickly you then pop off of it, which is great tool for us coaches, I tell you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely, I might, I don't know if I'm going to video it, maybe I will, but the, try the double, <laughs> instead of the double tail kick, I'm going to do the double knee, knee tuck and see if I can not, yeah, <laughs> like not fall over or fall forward. So I, yeah, I do want to get into the, I'm just picturing it now. It's just funny, funny. Like I try to think of myself even doing that. So you, you mentioned the extensive plyos for athletes uh, in team sports. And, you know, I, I have mixed, it's funny because I have opinions that go both directions with this. I, I remember I did a podcast with uh, Will Rattel back a while ago and, and he had said this and I agreed with him that just like, why do you need to do all these extensive plyos or extensive plyos? I shouldn't say all because you might be straw manning it there, right? Depending on the volume. But if athletes are already doing all these ground contacts in team sport, and I, I remember seeing like, I'd saw videos of, you know, athletes doing like team sport athletes doing like a rudiment, like ankle hop series in, in season. And I, I was thinking like, well, why do they need to be doing that? They're already doing all these yeah ground contacts. But like you said, you know, a lot of those contacts could be, and this got my wheels turning as you said it. And, and I have a few, I'll tell I'll say where I'm on the other side of it too, is yeah, there could be athletes who don't have that, that base like quickness level, or maybe they're not getting that bucket very much. And one thing that I was thinking of is um, like Jay Schrader's calf jumps. It's like basically jumping rope, but it's like jumping rope without a rope. 
But your your goal is actually to kind of just, you know, people do plyometrics and they coach like the dorsiflexion and the pogos and stuff. And it's kind of like that, but it's more like, like just low, like you aren't ju- trying to do a pogo. It's literally like you're like an inch off the ground and you're mm-hmm. just rapid reversing. And I'm like, I would do that and see, because that I'm like, all right, if we're taking it to the extreme end of things, well, I don't yeah. think they're getting that bucket and they're not getting that for 30 seconds. You know, like your, your tibs, you train the tips, your tibs burn after that, your calves burn. Like that is not a stimulus you are getting in your no. sport. So I'm like, I would do that because that is not the sports stimulus. But then I also think, well, do we, how many of these hops do we need to do? You know, like, so I, I mean, I'm curious with volumes and, you know, what your take is, because I definitely agree. Like there are athletes who aren't you know, very springy on that very base level. There's a bucket, yeah. like, but yeah, yeah more, th- more thoughts on that. The the overarching thought that I always tell people is that you have to understand that if you work within a sport that is very heavy in terms of the amount that they play, so in things like basketball, soccer's pretty rough with it as well, they're going to be on the court or on the pitch a lot. So inherently learning to be elastic, dynamic, learning all these new movement patterns being able to do it in all these different amplitudes, like the ones we mentioned, whether it's faster, whether it's real short, fast stuff, whether it's a bit more displacement, a bit more dynamic, reactive in a sense. You have to understand that this is year-on-year development. So you might, if you're a college coach or you're a high school coach, you might have three or four years, whatever it might be with them. You are going to get very little work done in those off-season periods. So also having a small stimulus in season to even maintain a level of of dynamicness or elastic capability. The, the, the stimulus doesn't have to be huge, but keeping that in there so that the skill parameters are always there. So when you return to the off season, you've got a great block period where you can genuinely say, well, we don't have to teach you how to land again. We don't have to introduce this movement again in four weeks time. These guys are already doing it and they're doing it year long. So that's my overarching thought of it all. I understand that some people will struggle to fit really kind of any volume of work in there. But I just think that the quality of the work, like I mentioned before, the quality of what they're doing on the court is nothing in comparison to what you might demand with even basic extensive levels of plyometrics. Like I have I have my light tier, my medium tier for my submaximal forms of plyos. The light tier, I'd say is a little bit more than the rudimentary stuff out of Alsis. It's fast on the ground, but there's a little bit of displacement. It's very, very relaxed in a sense, but it's relatively stiff. Medium tier is more relaxed kind of bounding, but a a bit more speed. And you might not need a lot of that medium stuff, but the light stuff especially, I don't think that you see enough fast dynamic movement on a core, even even with small displacement. Those small displacement movements, I think, are are small on a court because they're spending X amount more time on the floor. They're ambling around. They might have rolled out of a, a jump. They take a couple more contacts. Whatever it might be, they might cut, do a few movements, cut again, and they're in and out of motions. And you might think, oh, it looks relatively fast, but in the third quarter, believe me, you time this stuff. It's not fast. So that's a lot of where I stand with it. And... I just like to keep my athletes safe in a, or maybe in the back of my mind, keep them safe in a sense that they are getting in these patterns and they're able to do it at a much faster degree. So they're loading the tissue and tendons and, you know, basket of, of ligaments and muscles in and around the lower extremities so that when they do those slower forms, they're okay with it as well. That's, that's realistically the, the main bulk of how I look at it and how I attack 
working with most of the teams that I do. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I'm curious. Now I'm curious to kind of, I'd be curious to get the times on some of these different you know steps within the scope of team sport. I know for me, I, I always felt more elastic, more explosive doing, and, and this is this this just being my own training history. When it was not in season, I remember doing a lot of like when I was like 16, doing like single leg jump roping and stuff like that. And, mm. and I always liked doing that stuff. And I think actually it's funny because I didn't come along to depth jumps and more of the more powerful type of things till a little bit later. And I, I actually think in, in looking at the, the total buildup of it all, I think that was a good thing for me. I remember though, the further I got away from this, just things like playing basketball you know, or team sport in general, I did lose reactivity. And I didn't, and I, I didn't, you know, wasn't doing um, anything extra for plyos in season. And I feel like for me, the, a lot of it, it's, it's like, well, what's happening here? <laughs> and I think there's a lot of things. I don't think it's, it's just whatever the context were for me. I think a lot of it is that it, a lot of it is like lateral, it's rotational, it's movement happening in pairs. There's the intention of being in a sport and competing uh, yeah, and, and sure. everything that brings. And there's, there's a lot that that brings. That's, I mean, even if I'm just doing a workout on my own and just a bunch of people come in and are watching or are there or whatever, and the environment changes, I'll, I'll jump four inches higher sometimes. You know, it's just yeah. there's environmental stuff. But I, I do think a lot of the, I'd be curious because I do feel like there's a lot of jab steps that are pretty quick. To me, sure. I almost look at the more, the, the pieces of it. I, I, get, I go back to the calf jumps. This is just my opinion. I thought is the, the, like a quick calf jump or you're just jumping rope to warm up or something. It's like it gives you a, a metabolic piece to the tissue that maybe you didn't get because maybe you had a lot of quick steps in sport and, and a cumulative. Yeah. Like I remember after playing open gym basketball, I remember I, I would be in bed. And I, and my calves would just be twitching, like, like involuntarily yeah. just, ch -ch 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 -ch. And, and I mean, so the total stimulus was crazy, but I look at the, like the acute metabolic stimulus you'd get by doing mm. like a bunch of little single leg hops or double, like you, you wouldn't get that. And so I'm like, well, this no. could complement this, this particular stimulus could complement well. But bottom line is I definitely, I, I definitely can see the, you know, especially the players who aren't like the longer getting that bucket if they don't get it. You have my curiosity peaked on on some of the contact times throughout, and and for sure like the little metabolic piece, and for sure the the quick stuff. I'm actually almost more sold in my head too on the the calf jumps piece. No matter what, yeah. you know, you could always do that yeah. for sure. Yeah, so. yeah, and well, you know, and I I also think that realistically, if you aren't doing faster, kind of towards my my light tier rudimentary stuff, if you're not doing that in a warm up, then I feel like you're missing out on an opportunity there just to get a body of work in, just to do some stuff. Like, what does it take for you to just bounce around a little bit before you start to scrimmage or before you start to start to warm up for a game? I think that there's there's value in that. And you can't do that two or three times a week. I, I feel like you could quite easily creep in even a hundred landings. And and with the with the calf jump stuff, easily, easily get a couple of hundred landings doing that with ease. That could be after the game. <laughs> you can, you know, how much does that bring in? How can you, can you fatigue things in that sense so much that you then bring that on as, in terms of a, a metabolic side of it? I mean, my, f my flip side of that in season, especially is, is the yielded work that we do. And that has become a very big place for, for in season because there's just, 
there's just so much work that's not done in those deeper ranges of motion that it mm. it is a flip of those mechanisms that you're you're spending a lot of time in overcoming work throughout the whole of a of a game or within practices and flipping the switch not per se plyometric in, in inverted commas but it is a landing and takeoff form of uh, of movement but it's definitely more metabolic in a sense you can do mm-hmm. high repetition of them and it's pretty tough on the major joints that are receiving the load and it's a good way to get landings in that take away so much of the loading of the lower leg but starts to work higher up the chain in terms of the knee and the and the hip and how you control your posture and stuff so that has that paired with the very rudimentary stuff seems to be a recipe that's working really well for us year long and and that you know it just grows in volume in, in the in season in comparison to more of the dynamic stuff that you would do in the off season yeah i, I will say yeah just one last thing with the the extensive uh, before because i do want to get in the deep the deep tier stuff yeah uh, for sure yeah. before our time runs out but i even like i had a podcast with dan bach talking about like all the extensive stuff, like all the, like the A skips. And this is for sprinting, like all the A skips and B skips and all the little iterations of that. And uh, the topic of our show was more how that stuff really doesn't transfer to s- actual cyclical wheel sprint mechanics. Uh, it's actually something that more is building qualities, extensive qualities in the feet and the ankle and lower leg and calf. And then you're working your hip flexors as well. And I mean, it's very common to do that stuff. People will do those in warmups all the time for like football or yeah. whatever. There's all, you always see that kind of stuff in there. And so in, in, in that respect, there is that extensive supply of just delivering the warm up for whenever they're going to go warm yeah. up for their, yeah. And you can think of that bucket there as well. Hey, you're getting these little bounces here and then you're going to go play. So I think that's, Absolutely. yeah, that, that just kind of made me think of that there. Uh, okay. So deep tier stuff. And, and cause I, I, I do find the deep tier really intriguing. I know, um, like stuff like like lunge jumps, you know, the Russian lunge jumps has been around for a little while, but I don't know if too yeah. many people would see that and think, oh, you are the goal. Of this is like like how you describe the deep tier, like getting in the stretch range and purposefully working in the stretch range with a rhythm or repeatedly. And I could definitely see that even like the first time I did like little bunny hops, like little squatted like bunny hops. Oh, this feels good. Like this is cool. So, um, yeah, tell me a little bit more about the the deep tier. Maybe first, like just your origins of of kind of experimenting and coming up with that type of thing. And then, yeah, tell me a little bit more about its place in the overall workout program. Yeah, so its its origins come massively from Zoltan Tenke, who Hungarian coach that moved over to to Canada. Him and a lot of the Polish sector went over in the seventies. My coach Eric is from Toronto, Canada, and was mentored and coached by by Zoltan. And Zoltan brought over so much of these locomotive plyometrics, and the deep tier was. You know, Eric would kind of romanticize about the the late months of the summer and being in kind of September, October time where you'd get on some grass and you would do hundreds of these deeper range movements in terms of landing and takeoff mechanics. And I tell you, the we did a lot of it as well. But first of all, it's such great fun. Like people, mm-hmm. I don't think people understand, like you say, the therapeutic side of that sort of work, of feeling that whole range of motion. And you know someone that hasn't done a lot of it because they just fight to dropping into that, mm-hmm. into that deeper range. They don't want it to to they don't want their bodies to yield to a sense and drop into that. And yeah, so it, it was inherited by the stuff that we did as jumpers, stuff that Eric did in, in the 70s. And I've kind of taken it, added it to the the four main tiers that we use within our within our plyometric programs and 
I have a split of deep tier work that is deep tier yielding and deep tier overcoming. So you can you can do things with a lot more intent in the overcoming sense. So you know you might be doing let's say lunge jumps for height. You're probably going to be overcoming when you drop into that because you're you're falling from a much greater height. But the yielded side would be far more rhythmical, and you're allowing almost. And I see it as well when I do um, when I do like more of like a squat jump, but I'm maybe not completely leaving the the takeoff. I call them kind of like your oscillatory stuff that you've shown online as well. But watching that pelvis tilt and drop under, and having actually having some butt wink and allowing yeah. some joints to free freely move in that way. And I tell you, there isn't a lot of research on it. There's a ton of anecdote on 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 what's done with it. But until now, if you if if you go out and try some of this, you will see value in it straight away and what it brings. And it's now going as far as us using using it with weightlifters. We have a lot mm. of Olympic weightlifters that are crazy for this yielding deep stuff because all they do is fight and overcome force. So to bring in an, an element of velocity when you drop into these movements at deeper ranges, they don't know what to do with themselves. And they're like, I'm having to like really figure out what it feels like to drop into these deeper ranges, allow my body to relax. Because ultimately it's part of their sport is to relax in that into the top of that catch and allow themselves to drop into it before they do stiffen up and overcome. But as soon as that weight increases, the idea of overcoming to a sense, I think, really creeps in. So it's been amazing how far that's gone in terms of the different types of sports that have really taken to it. And just think there's a hell of a lot of value for for really exposing people to stress, stressing the joints at deeper ranges. And, you know, I don't like the idea of injury prevention, but there's a, there's a safety net a little bit to that and and really just providing that regular stimulus of something in that sense. Yeah. And I've been working with, with a lot of basketball teams that have been using it, you know, season long and it doesn't have to be huge volume. I will say to you, you know, if you've not done this before, be aware there is doms coming in the next day (laughs) because you don't, you've just. People are like, oh, this is easy. I'm just bouncing in and out of these movements and then wake up the next day like, oh, okay. That's mm-hmm. what it feels like to really stretch at that length um, and to do it quite fast because you don't realize how fast the loading is when you drop into that. So massively important for postural stability as well at that depth. And then you can start to chuck med balls in. You can be really creative with the variations that you do with it. And it's there's I need to do a little bit more testing on it. I want to see what the ground contact times are like. I want to see, I'd like to see what the force parameters are like on it just to give me a little bit more detail on, on what this stuff's doing. Um, and I'd like to see some research on it. I'd like to see how tendons develop off of it because I found that there's been big value for knee health Yeah. Uh, with, you know, patella tendon issues. So yeah, it's a, it's really, really exciting to continually play with it. And for me to learn as I can, you know, push it out to more athletes and coaches. Yeah. You, you said something that I really thought was interesting. It was, you said it really feels good. And I was just thinking about doing like the bunny hops. I was like, yeah, that does feel good. Like when you don't have to go back up, like when you're just sitting in the bottom and letting yourself yield. And I was like, yeah. well, why does it feel good? And I was thinking about Julian Pinot talked about this when he was talking about uh, movements that are more like external torque chain, like a, like watch Klukov in a clean and his face is like, you know, th- you see any Olympic lifter in a clean, you have the sympathetic drive. That's the extension up. It's yep. like a deep, just doing a bunny jump where you're just sitting and you don't have to go back up. You aren't generating the external torque chain features yep. to, to take it up. It's actually like a recovery mechanism, you know? Sort yeah. Of. Yeah. I, t- I talk about, um, I talk about tapping into passive reflexes 
So you, without even really trying, you reflex out of the yeah. bottom of it when you give it a little bit of speed. So just that little, so I do, I also play with a variation, what we call a double dip. So you will be getting in and out of one of the movements, but when you drop down, you drop and then you drop again quickly and then you pop out of it. And that plays with with passive reflexive actions, I think, at the bottom of ranges, which I think is super valuable if you're trying to transfer that into, let's say you're cutting, changing mm-hmm. direction. If you're, if you're, you know, you're quite deep in some of these, some of these movements and in terms of how you change direction, if you've if you've taught the body to be reflexive in that in that position, then that, that's awesome. To me, that that's worth so much. Um, and it doesn't constantly, like you say, it doesn't re- require you to go, oh, I need to create torque mm-hmm. out of the bottom of this. I need to apply that force in this way for me to find any way out of the bottom of the whole of this. You can find a little bit of bounce out of it. I think it has a lot of value. Yeah, even like you... I think you had mentioned too, like, this fits with what you said about the pairing, like you could do three low hops and then feel the passivity of the loading where you're free energy, right? You don't have to yeah. turn on the, 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 the chain that's going to send you up. And then you could ride that chain into a higher jump. That's now it's effortless. Exactly. And it's like, that's just, yeah, this pairing, the pairing is just the magic in so many ways. Um, yeah. I was just thinking too, like where an extensive, you mentioned with the Olympic weightlifters, like you'll see like just the extensive warmups, you know, there's skips and hops and whatever to go play. But I think like for Olympic weightlifter, maybe a lot of the deep tear stuff could be that if you put that into their warm up, maybe that it is part of the warm up process for that group too, just because it's it's free energy. It's it's working the same ranges in a rhythmic pattern, which the rhythm, you know, it's a, yeah. you know, there's obviously rhythm in Olympic lifting, but they don't get a chance to be cyclical with it maybe as much as someone who runs yeah. or moves in a running manner. So that I'm sure exactly. I'm sure you're seeing that too. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well you you can't like you can't teach rhythm in a single in a single movement can you like it's really difficult so you have to get into a pattern to be like okay i understand this this is what it feels like i'm going to just tweak that to maybe secure that position a bit better rather than being like here's a here's a heavy load here's also some fatigue on top of that so you've only got x amount of reps to create that rhythm well you can do hundreds of these in a week and i think that that's such a larger it's just such a larger portion of time for you to learn um and one of my good friends, Chris Speed and Brandon Accardi are both Olympic weightlifting coaches and they, they're implementing it hugely. Like it's becoming such a large portion of every warm up that they do. And I love it because I work with so many dynamic sports that are more team based or track and field or whatever. And it's like you do all the dynamic stuff first and you might end up with some deep tier. Well, they flip that completely on its head and they're like, we start with the deep yielding stuff and that then gears up into doing some lifts. And then they might do some extensive pose after that as well. But it's yeah, it's really cool to to see how that's developing in a sense. And they like they love being able to front load a med ball in, in front of you, dropping into something where, you know, you might be internally rotating, so you're better at you know holding a front mm. rack position in a cl- whatever that might be. It's just, there's just loads of options for it. Um, it's just good fun. Like you can create 15 variations in in two minutes. And you can play with them, figure out those rhythms, gear those rhythms. You know do 20 reps of them, see what it feels like. It's also an incredible workout coming out the back of doing, you know, a set of set of 20 landings. You, you feel, you feel how, how taxing it is as well metabolically. Yeah. It's something too, where you, you can explore it more. It's like, it's more of the variable exploratory piece or where there's more exploratory options than your, your yeah. main thing in many cases too. So that can yeah. add that creativity side. Well, cool, yeah. man. Well, Hey, I, man, I have some other questions I would love to ask you. Sadly, Sad we're out of time here. We'll have to circle back. But hey, I appreciate you yeah. taking time on the show. Uh, where can people, I'm sure a lot of people are, are familiar with you, but where can they learn more about you and what you're doing if they aren't, um, don't know? 
Yeah, well, thanks ever so much for having me on. It's been it's been great. We can yeah we we can talk about this stuff for hours. Um, but yeah, they can they can either come over to so Instagram at McInnes Watson or go to our website uh, www and yeah, all of our resources, programs, and, and courses are on there. But yeah, thanks ever so much for having me on, Joel. That wraps up another episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next week.